morning we continue our study through the book of Romans, and we're in Romans chapter 8. So as you're finding your place there, uh, let me just go ahead and give you a disclosure before we get started. Uh, I, I, to be clear, we're getting into a, a, a section of Scripture that is uh, highly debatable uh, among brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I just want to kind of set my theological position down before you and just go ahead and admit to you that I come from a more of a Reformed background and, and it kind of shapes my understanding of Scripture. It's one of those lenses that I talked about last week that we have to be willing to identify for ourselves and be at times willing to take those lenses off and set aside and let Scripture speak for Scripture and, and so, uh, while I have a uh, Reformed background, I am neither a Calvinist, nor am I an Arminianist. I am a Calvin-Arminius combined type of... What I'm trying to say is I believe that there's a harmony that we're missing out. And so, I think if we take hardline positions... We, 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 we overlook what appears to be some clear scripture, scripture teaching as well. Some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about when you say things like Calvinist and Arminius, and you're probably blessed because of that. Quite frankly, I think labels like that kind of do more damage than they do good. And so what I'd like to be able to do this morning is just to do my best to present to you what I believe Scripture teaches and shows is the order of salvation. And so this morning we're going to be unpacking some incredible theological terms. Terms like foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. I find it hard to believe that anyone could read and study through the book of Romans and walk away with the belief that, that says the Bible says nothing about predestination. I, 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 clearly, it does. Which means neither Martin Luther nor did John Calvin invent the idea or the concept of predestination. Predestination is a biblical doctrine that needs careful attention and a proper understanding. So last week we looked at the purpose of salvation. This morning we're going to look at the progress of our salvation or the order of salvation. So Romans 8 verse 29 says, Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So, our redemption began with God's foreknowledge. The word there for know is a combination of a couple of Greek terms. It takes the Greek word gnosko, which means to know, 
And it adds to gnosko the prefix pro, which means before. And so now we get this term that's called pro-gnosko. Pro-gnosko means to know beforehand or even to select in advance. So a believer is, first of all, someone whom God foreknew, someone whom God selected in advance. Which means, hear me out, salvation is not initiated by a person's individual decision to submit and surrender their lives unto Jesus. Yes, Scripture is clear that repentant faith is a necessary element of salvation. I would also agree that repentant faith is the first step we take in response to God. But repentant faith is not what initiates salvation. In fact, Paul doesn't even mention faith in these two verses. Paul doesn't even mention the the work of sanctification in these two verses. And yet, both of those elements, repented faith and sanctification, are essential to the life of a believer. And so I believe that the reason why they're not mentioned here is because Paul is writing about the order of salvation from God's perspective and not from ours. And so it begins. The first step in salvation began long, long ago. In fact, it began even before the world was created. Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will. So, there are some who believe that selecting in advance means that God knew those who would believe in His Son, therefore He selected those that He knew would believe. The the view goes like this. From all eternity, God has prior knowledge to all of the activities and the thoughts of mankind. And so, since He knows everything about everyone from an eternal perspective, then God knows in advance with respect to time, He knows what we will do as humans. And so he knows in advance who will and who will not respond to the gospel. So there are some that, that, that hold this idea, this belief that God looks down the corridors of time from his vantage point in eternity and he sees the, the different responses from different people in, in response to the gospel of his son. And so based upon his knowledge on how we as humans will respond, then God predestined those whom he knows 
will say yes to Jesus. So predestination, according to this view, is not an actual foreordaining that people will be saved. Rather, according to this view, it's only a foreordaining that those who believe will be saved. So with this view of predestination, God does not work the faith in the hearts of mankind. This is something that we do by our own response, by our own will, or by our own choice. This belief says that God foreknows who will choose, and on the basis of his knowledge of who will choose, he then predestines. But that's not what the scripture says here. Again, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Not for, for those God foreknew would choose him, he also predestined. That's adding something to the text. So God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his foresight, but it's a reference to his foreordination. It means God not only sees faith in advance, God ordains faith in advance. Think about it like this. In Acts chapter 2, verse number 23, during his sermon at Pentecost, Peter declares of Jesus, and he says, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Oh, this, this verse is critical to our understanding of, of foreknowledge. It, it says that term right there, predetermined. You see it in the text, the predetermined. It comes from a Greek word, horizo. Or horizo. This is where we get our English word horizon. And so a horizon designates the outer limits of the earth that we can see from a given vantage point. And so horizo is the basic idea in Greek of setting the outer limits or setting or the establishment of any boundaries. Okay, so we have this, this one term, horizo, but then there's this other term that he used. It's translated as plan. You'll see in the Greek, it's bully, right? In that term, in classical Greek, it's, it designates a decision-making council. Okay, so, so check it out. So we have this predetermined plan, right? There's this, this outer limits, the boundaries, in line with a decision-making council. So both words include the idea of willful intention. That's the key. A, a, a willful intention. And then we see this other word. Foreknowledge. There, it, it is a noun form of, of the verb that we just read. Uh, foreknew. Okay? And, and so this, this word foreknowledge... Now, here's where it gets really kind of technical for you language-loving individuals. Go with me here for a moment. There's an interesting rule that's being played out here in Greek. This is what some scholars refer to as the Granville Sharp rule. 
the Granville Sharp rule. That rule says that if there are two nouns of the same case, so the two nouns in this sentence would be plan and foreknowledge, if those two nouns are in the same case, and in this case, both of those nouns are in the singular dative form, so that meets the first criteria. Two nouns, same case. If those nouns are connected by the Greek word chi, translated for us, and, and so they are, so rule number two, right, it's there. They're connected by and, okay, and if it has the article the before the first noun, but not before the second noun, that's going to make sense here in just a moment. It's before the first noun, not before the second noun. Then both nouns refer to the same thing. Talk about the same thing. I'll give you an example. If I were to say to you, I met the owner and the president of the company, John Smith. Question. What's the name of the owner? It may be John Smith, or it might not be John Smith. It's unclear. I've said the owner and the president. But if I say I met the owner and president, John Smith, then what do we know? They're both referring to the same thing. Okay, so that's, okay, that's our talking. Let me give you an example from Scripture, okay? Here's one from Titus chapter 2, verse number 13. It says, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of, here we go, the glory of our great God, so glory of our great God, and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, glory of our great God, Savior. They're connected by the word and, and it has the article the before the first one, not before the second one, which means it's talking about the same person. Both of them are talking about Jesus. So, so, so why is that significant? Well, according to Acts chapter 2, verse number 23, Peter equates God's predetermined plan as the same thing as his foreknowledge. And so for some people, the concept of foreknowledge and election, let's just be honest, for some, we struggle with it because it just doesn't seem fair. That's what we hear often. It's not fair. It just doesn't seem right. But in reality, the decree and fulfillment of election provides mercy for the elect, while the condemnation of sinners provides justice for the reprobate. And so, yes, it's true. God sovereignly and unconditionally shows His mercy upon some. And it's also true that God faithfully administers His justice to those that have been passed over in election. And yet, no one, hear me, no one is the victim of injustice. The failure to receive mercy is not to be treated unjustly or unfairly. Because God is under no obligation to grant mercy to everyone. 
In fact, God is under no obligation to grant mercy to anyone. And yet Jesus says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. I think the, honestly, I think the early church understood this concept a lot better than we do today. In fact, I'll share some examples on why I feel that way. We don't do a lot of confessional statements these days. Sometimes I think we might miss out because we don't. Confessional statements are concise declarations of our understanding over doctrines. And so I want to share with you some some confessional statements that are found in, in the early church. And I want you to see how they clearly understood this doctrine. We'll start with the first one. It's from 1536. It's referred to as the Reformed Confession. And in that confession, in fact, in article number 9, it says our salvation is from God. But from ourselves, there is nothing but sin and damnation. That is a clear understanding. The French Confession of Faith from 1559, article 12 says we believe that from this corruption and general condemnation in which all men will be plunged god according to his eternal and immutable counsel calleth those whom he hath chosen by his goodness and mercy alone in our lord jesus christ without consideration of their works to display in them the riches of his mercy, leaving the rest in this same corruption and condemnation to show in them his justice. Another example comes from the, from the Belgic Confession of Faith in 1561. There it says, We believe that all the posterity of Adam, being thus fallen in perdition and ruined by the sin of our first parents, God then did manifest himself such as he is. That is to say, merciful and just. Merciful, since he delivers and perseveres from this perdition, all whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere goodness, hath elected in Christ Jesus our Lord without respect to their works. And then just and leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. I'll give you one more. How about the, the Westminster Confession of Faith from 1643? There it says, As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath He, by the eternal and most free purpose of His will, foreordained all the means thereunto. Wherefore, they who are elected are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, 
but the elect only. And then it says, the rest of mankind, God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withheldeth mercy as he pleaseth for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and to ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. So, just in case I haven't been clear to this point, one more time. I believe it is unbiblical as well as illogical to argue that God simply looked down the corridors of time and then chose those for salvation whom he knew would choose him. Because if that were true, salvation would begin with man. Salvation would begin with us, not with God. And so, if that were true, then that would mean that God's initiative would be eliminated. It means that His grace would be invalidated. And so, the doctrine of election and predestination can be a difficult thing to grasp. But just because it's difficult to understand and comprehend doesn't mean it's any less true. And so, this this idea can produce within us all sorts of questions and all kinds of objections. Questions like, oh, well, then why does God create unbelievers? If they know they're going to be unbelievers, then why did He create them? Why didn't God just make believers and believers alone? So while we might not be able to fully comprehend God's omniscient eternal plan, we can believe in what the Bible clearly says. Every aspect of salvation originates with God. Every aspect. Salvation is empowered by God's grace alone, through faith which is the gift from God, and Christ Jesus alone. In John chapter 6, Jesus was preaching in Galilee early in His ministry. And Jesus makes this statement, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. And then adding clarity to the statement, a few verses later in verse number 44, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then in light of all that, according to to John chapter 1, verse number 13, Salvation does not come from the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so then back to our text in verse number 29. It says, because those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brothers. And so, from foreknowledge which looks at the beginning of God's purpose in His act of choosing. From foreknowledge, we, we, we see God's plan of redemption moves to predestination. 
And so predestination looks at the end of God's purpose in choosing whom he chooses. And so let's take a minute to, to have a better understanding of what that word predestined means. And so predestined is also a combination of Greek words. Uh, the root of it comes from the Greek word horizo. We, we already talked about that word. To determine. That's the same word as predetermined in Acts chapter 2, verse number 23. And so the root of the word is horizo, and, and then you add to it the prefix pro, which means before. Now we get this Greek word that is called proorizo. Proorizo means to mark out, to appoint, or to determine beforehand. And so last week, we talked about the purpose of salvation. Another way we could have phrased that would be referring to it as the goal of predestination. So the purpose of salvation or the goal of predestination is to be conformed to the image of his son so that we would be the firstborn, so that he would be the firstborn among his brothers. And so the only reason why God has saved anyone is for the sake of his son. The ultimate reason for predestination is the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. So thinking back to John 6, 37, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. It is clear that Jesus was aware of the fact that there were certain people that would be given to him by his Father. Take those Bibles, and this won't be on the screen. Turn back a few pages. Go to John chapter 15. So I want to be clear. Yes, I understand that there is a decision involved in the process of someone becoming a believer. Clearly, there's a decision involved there. But I would argue that it is God's decision before it can be our decision. The only reason that anyone would choose Christ is because He has chosen them. Well, look at what it says in John chapter 15, beginning of verse number 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Then he says in verse number 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you 
that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. I'll share a quote with you from Dr. J.I. Packer. He has this article that he wrote called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. In that article, he points out the fact that all Christians, he argues that every believer believes in God's sovereignty in salvation, even if they deny it. He argues they still believe it. He gives an example. Two facts prove this to be true. In the first place, you give thanks for your conversion. Now why would you do that? If you're the one that gets to make the decision, then why would you do that? Well, because you know that in your heart, it was God who was entirely responsible for your salvation. You did not save yourselves. God saved you. Then the other example he gives, the second way that you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation is when you pray for the conversion of others. You ask God to work in them everything necessary for their salvation. So our thanksgiving and our intercessions prove that we believe in God's divine sovereignty. So while on our feet we might have arguments about it, on our knees we all agree with it. In God's divine plan of redemption, please understand that predestination leads to calling. Predestination leads to calling. Verse number 30 says, In those whom He predestined, He also called. It is here that the eternal, salvific plan of God directly intersects our lives in real time. When Paul refers to being called by God in this context, he's not referring to the external call of the Gospel which falls upon the ears of believers and unbelievers. No, he's referring to, think back a few weeks ago, the internal or the effectual call of God. Paul says that everyone who is called, is justified. So he can't possibly be referring to that external call. Because everyone who hears the Gospel is not justified. And so he has to be speaking of the internal, effectual call. So who receives the internal call of God? Well, everyone who is predestined to receive it. Those who are called are those in whose hearts the Holy Spirit works in leading them to a saving faith in Jesus. So in God's divine plan of redemption, predestination leads to calling. And then the next element of God's saving work is justification. The justification of those who believe. Verse 30 continues and says, in whom He called, 
These he also justified. So after they are called by God, they are also justified by God. And so just as foreknowledge, predestination, and calling are the exclusive work of God, so too is our justification. Now up to this point in Romans, Paul has already talked a lot about justification. Therefore, it's not necessary to, to unpack that all over again. But in summary of all that he has said, let me emphasize that justification is more than forgiveness. It goes beyond just being acquitted. Justification is more than even our acceptance. No, justification is the, de- the declaration by God that we, sinners, are declared righteous. The justification is the declaration that sinners are, are, are declared righteous in God's sight. And how does He do that? He does that by crediting our account with the righteousness of His Son. Beautiful exchange happened. Jesus became sin, which means with our sin, so that we might become righteous, credited with His righteousness. So as with foreknowledge and predestination, calling and justification, then we get to the term glorification. That too is you're unable to separate that element and say that that's anything that we can do on our own because we can't. It too is exclusively the work of God. Verse 30 concludes with in whom He justified, these He also glorified. So in saying that those whom He justified, these He also glorified, Paul is emphasizing the eternal security of those who are in Christ Jesus. And how beautiful is it in knowing that no one whom God foreknew, no one will fail to be predestined, called, justified, and glorified. As believers, We know with absolute certainty what lies ahead of us. And that is an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. That's what lies ahead. So our eternal destiny is to be given a new body and a new world both of those will be transfigured with the glory of God. That's what waits for us. That's our future. So those whom He selected in advance, He predestined to be conformed into the image of His Son. And and He issued them an effectual call. And when they respond to that salvific call, then He justified them. And He glorified them. 
oh, and pay particular attention to the tense of that word glorification. It says he glorified. That is a past tense usage. Why would he say that we've been glorified if that glorification is still in our future? It's still what's waiting for us. Because he understands that this final step is so certain that God considers it as good as done. So how can any of us, as children of God, walk around consistently discouraged and frustrated, knowing that we, as His children, share in the glory of His Son? In his, in his second letter, Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter 2, look and listen to what Paul says. Beginning in verse 13, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you as the first fruits for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this He called you through our Gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace encourage your hearts and strengthen them in every good work and word. I love that. I love it so much. I, notice how, back in Romans 8, you're, you're still there. I know you're there. Notice how, how, how Paul continues the thought. And this is where we'll pick up next week. Verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Amen! Amen! Question for you today. It's the Spirit of God moving in your heart and life. It's the Spirit of the Lord drawing you unto salvation. Would you submit and surrender your life unto the Savior for all of God's children in this place? What is it that we need to be doing that we're not currently doing, but that God calls us to there's decisions to be made. Will you make them today? Heavenly Father, thank you for your love, for your goodness, and for your kindness, and for your long suffering. God, help us to, to do the right thing. May your spirit move among us. We know that you're sovereign in and through all things. God, I pray that we would be sensitive to what the Spirit is trying to point out in and through our lives in this moment. Oh, there are decisions to be made, prayers to be said. 
commitments to be extended all for your glory. God, help us. My prayer is that you are pleased by what you see from us in our response to your word. May we have a deep abiding desire within us to be faithful, to live our lives in accordance to the word of God and to your will. Help us in this time. In Christ's name I pray.